0: This is a recording made in the chapter of the opened book, and is number five of the series, Ye See Your Calling. It is the custom of this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and we are reading Second Timothy, chapter one. Those of you who are joining in this uh, tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off and read that with us? Second Timothy, chapter one. we have had before us now four of these studies with the word calling as the basis. And this evening, we are taking the text for the moment out of 2 Timothy chapter 9 and reminding ourselves that this is a holy calling. Let us read that verse together again. Who hath saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. We have said before, and I believe it's true, that holiness is not one of the commonest words that is in everyday use. In ordinary business affairs you would have the word just and right and true, but only In an exceptional case, would you find a business letter dictated in this part of the city that spoke about something being holy. It doesn't belong. The very nature of the word holy is like the word itself. It means entirely separated. But it means more than that. If you come to think of it, all other of the attributes of God are really focusing upon this final one. He is just. But justice is cold in comparison with holiness. But in comparison with holiness, the epistle of the Hebrews speaks about our God as a consuming fire. And you know how in Romans, he said, for a just man you wouldn't find somebody perhaps willing to die, but for a good man you might. You know, justice is just 12 shillings, 20 shillings in the pound. For goodness, perhaps gives a little bit over. But justice is is exact. It's right. And God is exact and right. That if he was only exact and right, where should we be? And so God is love. And folks have said, that's the climax and the ultimate. But God is holy. And that must never be left out of our reckoning. Now, I'm not going to repeat what has been said in an earlier tape recording, and I've got such a wonderful memory. I don't quite know where it comes. I leave that to you to look for it if you want it. Isn't that kind of me? True Berean spirit. You search and see. But in one of those tape recordings, I said this. Have you stopped to think of the difficulty that a man like Moses would have with a people coming out of idolatrous Egypt with all the elements that we know about them from the early record of the Bible, what a lot they were, to try to get them to get some idea, some idea of what God means when he uses the word holy. It's difficult enough for us to grasp it. How did he attempt it? Well, I looked at the scriptures and I found there was this approach. I'll only give you the barest outline you can fit it in in order to impress upon this people the distinctive character of God and the distinctive character of his people, he put boundaries round a piece of land and called it a holy land. Well, it was no more holy than the next bit and no more better soil than the next bit, but if God had separated it unto himself, that was the essential character. And then, in that holy land, he put a holy nation, he calls them so, they were very unholy in many of their actions, but because he had called them and chosen them and destined them for their high position in the days to come, they were a holy nation. Would well, you might have said, "Oh, well, that's, that, that's near enough"? Oh, no, not near enough. He chose out of that holy nation one tribe only, the tribe of Levi, and the tribe of Levi had access to God that the others had not. And you remember there was a rebellion raised by uh, one or two, they said, all the congregation of Israel are holy. You're taking too much to yourselves. And those who raised that rebellion suffered a dreadful death at the hand of God. But it wasn't enough needed to be a Levite. Oh no, God chose one family out of the tribe of Levi. And that family were the family of priests. And not one of them ever entered into the holiest of all. He chose, now let's go like this, he chose one man out of one family, out of one tribe, out of one nation, living in one land, one man to go into the presence of the living God in the holiest of all once a year and that without blood, not without blood. Now that was the way in which the Old Testament writers sought to give some impression upon this primitive people of this most advanced word, holy. I only think you catch the feeling now. It was something that was peculiarly belonging to God himself, separated by him unto himself, and therefore the reflex should be, what manner of persons ought we to be, if that is the character of our calling. So we have a holy calling. We have noticed, as Paul drew near to the end of his time, in his introductions, he introduces the word life. In the introduction here, he, um, he speaks about, in the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life. In Titus, he speaks about the promise of life. As death drew near, life drew near too. And now, he not only calls it a calling, wherewith we are called, he reminds us it's a holy calling. And that throws us back to the fact that when this glorious teaching was introduced, of which 2 Timothy is the final, we find that in the first few verses of the epistle to the Ephesians. Shall we see that for ourselves, although we know it quite well to quote? Ephesians 1, verse 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see, we've had two words, or three words, blessing, and spiritual, and heavenly, All blessings that are to be enjoyed in heavenly places, which are spiritual, demand this one word, holy. We should never enjoy them if we were not. It would be worse than a fish out of water. It would be awful and horrible for an unholy person to be in the midst of pure, unalloyed holiness. Doesn't it make you feel the need of the work of God on our behalf? the redemption of our Saviour, the application of the blood of Christ, the work of the Spirit and all that's necessary to make us accepted in the Beloved. And aren't we conscious that we cannot stir a finger to produce holiness? A a self-produced piety is even worse than nothing at all. And it could never get into the presence of God. So we have now been chosen before the foundation of the world that we should be, now we go off and say that we should be blessed, that we should be sitting with Christ in glory, that we, no, 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 first of all, that we should be holy and without blemish. And then when we go further, we discover that in the day of presentation in chapter 5 of Ephesians, It gives you a little idea of the subdividing of this word holiness. Verse 26 and 27. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word. Uh, Righteousness deals with an account against you. But sanctification deals with uncleanness. You get David expressing the two thoughts in Psalm 51. He says, wash me and I shall be clean. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. That's holiness. Blot out. That's justification. Righteousness put to your account. And the account settled in God's books. Blot out. Wash me. So, sanctify by the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, but that it should be holy (coughs) and without blemish. So you see, we're getting back to the Old Testament statement, the beauty of holiness. We don't want to be uh, frivolous, but this is God's beauty treatment for his people. When that day comes that they shall be presented without being ashamed of his presence. You remember, I often hark back to the day when Queen Esther, before she was queen, was called upon to go into the presence of the king. And there was a great company of young women who had been anointed for six months in myrrh and various other toilet treatments. And they had the option of choosing whatever costume they wished out of the, the royal wardrobe. You could imagine what some of them tried on and then Esther, she was content to have whatever the one in charge gave her. That's where we are. Whatever we chose would be wrong. But what he gives to make us accept it is right. Well, all these things are a puny and poor attempt to say to you, don't use the word holiness triflingly. For without holiness, no man shall see God, it says. And holiness cannot possibly look upon sin. It must must be consumed in his presence. Consequently, if we're ever going to stand there, we must stand in the full acceptance that we have in Christ. Now we have another pair of statements in Colossians chapter 1, which you might like to uh, compare with this. Colossians chapter 1, starts off with these words in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Even if we leave it there, the saints. If it means only others who are sanctified, the inheritance that we have in front of us is an inheritance of the saints. That it can mean much more we have already seen in other meetings that it refers to the heavenly, holiest of all, by the way, in which the words are used, especially in the epistle to the Hebrews. But for the moment, here we have an inheritance, but that's not all. We are made meet for the inheritance of the saints in light. And the article is added in the light. When we are up there, friends, in that presence, there's one, pa- one statement that's in this book which would be gloriously true. This thing was not done in a corner. There's no hiding there. There's no way of getting out of that searchlight. And it's been expressed in that wonderful hymn that sometimes we sing: Eternal light. Eternal light. How pure that soul must be. Not only so, Not only does it say we are made neat for the inheritance of the saints in the light, but at the conclusion of this summary in verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So it's in the light and in his sight we are to be presented holy. And I cannot conceive of anyone being so foolish as to think it was possible to get away with anything up there. You remember how the man gate crashed into the wedding feast? And when the king came round and saw the guest, he said, friend, how camest thou in hither, not having a wedding garment? And you know what he said? Simply nothing. He had nothing to say. So here is the character of our calling, friends. A holy calling. And I hope that my little attempt to give you something of the solemnity of that word has helped you to see how much we depend upon the grace of God. Well now it's not only called a heavenly, it's not only called a holy calling, it is called in Philippians chapter 3, a high calling. And there are some who translate this the calling on high. And there's a little trap for those who consider the grammar. Because in English, an adverb goes with a verb. Now I don't think I'm a I'm an authority on grammar. I'm not. But I think we've got so far as that. And the mere, the person who gets all these doctrines from a Mexican says, look, that is an adverb. An adverb goes with a verb, so that's, this must mean God's calling on high. An upward calling. Not your calling in the sense we're using it, you have been called, but he is going to call you in the future. Well now the same word, the same word is used in Galatians when it says Jerusalem which is above, well, instead of Jerusalem being called up on high Jerusalem, is coming down, if you're going to have it that way. Don't you see? A law of grammar in English is not necessarily a law of grammar in Greek. This adverb is used as an adjective one way or the other. So, there's no justification for translating Philippians a calling up. It's your calling still which is being now defined once more. But this time, instead of having... Hope attached to the calling as we have in Ephesians. Hope, that's basic. He attaches the prize to the calling here, which is supplementary. Because it's one thing to have a blessed hope which you could never forfeit. And it's another thing to have run the race and kept the rules and touched the tape at the end and be able to say with the Apostle Paul, henceforth he's laid up for me a crown. So you see, the high calling is stressed here with regard to the prize. Then we we remind ourselves that all this wonderful gift of God to us should have some reflex action. We are not nearly saved, and that's the end of it. We are saved and left here. God doesn't act in the sense that the moment you're converted say, oh, So-and-so's gone, he was converted five minutes ago, he's gone. (coughs) God could have so arranged it, we should have all been like Enoch. We walk with God, he translates us, they look for us and cannot find us, but it isn't so. He's left us here. He's left us in the very surroundings in which we lived when we were in darkness and had no knowledge of God. Because in his mercy and in his grace, instead of coming directly individually to the soul and consciousness of each one person, which he could do, and which he sometimes does, he uses instrumentality. The apostle speaks about an earthen vessel being used. An earthen vessel. He says, how shall they hear without a preacher? Well, you may say, that means to say he feels God's dependent upon a preacher. No, that God has appointed a preacher as a means. And when it says, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God, that means to say somebody's reading the word of God to the other person, but he's hearing it. And sometimes we make a great mistake. A person who hasn't got any idea about the Bible... He may know something about the first verse of Genesis, and he may know something about the last bit of the Revelation, but what all the bit in between? Is it a maze? <coughs> and if you say to him, "That's the Word of God," and in that you will find the way of salvation. Well, by the time he's rummaged through all sorts of funny names and don't know why they did funny things and all the genealogies, he gives up in despair. That's a family book. It belongs to the faith. You have believed it. And you can say, like the blind man who was no theologian. He couldn't argue with the Pharisees. They wanted to make him admit that Jesus Christ must be a sinner because he'd done something on a Sabbath day. He said, Well, whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I know. Whereas I was blind, now I see. And he didn't say, Take it out of that, but that's what he meant. That's testimony. He couldn't explain the word atonement. He may not have known the word, but he said, one thing I know, he saved me. And God says, now you go and tell somebody else that. It's possible that those who are listening to this tape are wondering what's the matter with my voice. It's not so golden. Oh dear. <laughs> but it, it c- completely stopped at the end of the week after the meetings at Draycott, and I've been treated by a doctor since and it hasn't come back properly. But God is using it, I trust. You haven't listened to this tape because I am the uh, nightingale of Beccanum or something. As the Apostle apparently realized when they said about him, they said, you know, his his letters indeed are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is mean and his speech contemptible. And when they heard him speak in the open air in Athens, they said, come and listen to this parrot, a seed picker, this snapper up of trifles, coming to Athens to teach us this. So God, you see, stoops and use very, very, very earthen vessels, cracked vessels possibly sometimes, but they're meet for the master's use if they're devoted to him. And a person who is dying of thirst in a desert You'd hardly imagine. They say, "Oh, <laughs> excuse me, old boy," but we are all used to Royal Crown Derby at home uh, that looks like a woolworths. It wouldn't matter if it was in an old boot if he brought the water of life. So you see, it's not in ourselves, but in what God has done with us that <coughs> makes us calls us to service. Let's get one or two to jog our memory although you hardly need to turn to these verses, I will to read them correctly. Paul, a servant or a bond slave of Jesus Christ, called, our version says, to be an apostle. The verb to be is not there. It's just put in italics. He was called an apostle. Called apostle. His calling was that he was an apostle. And of course, you know the word apostle simply means apo, Away from Stello, I send someone that is sent away from another to represent him. So that you see, all apostleship is we speak as though God did speak in us. We are ambassadors for Christ. And do remember that the chiefest of the apostles is somebody blurts out Paul. I say no. Oh, they said you surprised me. I, I made sure you would say Paul was the chiefest of the apostles. So, if you read Hebrews chapter three, you'll discover that our Saviour is the chiefest of the apostles, and all apostleship derives from him. He said that they will that they will receive. He that receiveth you receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth Him that sent me. So it's a very sacred office to represent Christ. Now we are not called apostles. But there are other offices that are still open. And when we come to our calling and find that we are now denominated as members of the body of Christ and we are told that if one member suffer, all suffers and that these members are joints of supply. They don't originate the supply, but they are joints of supply passing on to others. Now that's our service. We can't get away from it, friends. It's not possible for us to be members of the body of Christ and have no work to do. Now it doesn't mean to say we've got to be chasing around to invent jobs. You'll discover that you've already got some natural aptitude Because God speaks about giving spiritual gifts according to their several ability, although sometimes he works a miracle and makes a most unqualified person do the work successfully. But if each one of us would realise that somebody else is dependent upon us for something or another, and we voluntarily step in and do it. You see, you don't have to say to your digestive organs, food uh, coming up. It knows it well enough because you know full well the very sight of it and the smell of It's starting all the old bits going in. That's working, naturally. No force about it. And it's not doing the work belonging to somebody else. And there's no independence one of another. The I cannot say of the hand, I have no need of thee. I don't know whether you've noticed on the Sunday morning service, when our brother Imberg opens a meeting with prayer, I'm very touched because he always gives me a place in it. But he also says that my partner in life, when we both stand to minister in this chapel, well, she's sitting there doing nothing. And you think oh, I'm up in the air over that, but say, that's lovely, because I don't... You, you ought to see the things I do in my own house when I'm left to myself. How I need this balance. Don't you see? We can't be independent one of another. And that is all a part of our calling in this question of service. (coughs) Well now let's turn our attention to something specific with regard to the Apostle Paul and I'm coming back to Galatians chapter 1. Now this is an old story with many of us. But I'm repeating it because I was told only this period when I was away somebody came to me and said you know the thing that finished me the thing that brought me clean out to see the truth that you were standing for, was when you stood up in that meeting and you said, now I want you to look at Galatians chapter 1. And you put on the board the words, not, neither, and but. Now most of you know it. But be thankful you know it. I want to make it plain again for those who are listening. Will you look at verse 1 of Galatians 1. Paul an Apostle. Now, instead of going on wishing them grace, mercy, and peace, he stops. Not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. That's a challenge, isn't it? Because he was challenged. And he admitted he wasn't worthy of to be called an apostle, but he had been. So he says, I'm an apostle, not of men, neither by man, but by Jesus Christ. And then halfway down the chapter, verse 11, I certify you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not, neither, but. Not after man, I neither received it of man, neither was I taught it, but by the revelation of Jesus Christ. (coughs) (coughs) Then comes his commission. Verse 15, But when it pleased God who separated me, Here you get the idea of separation coming in. We've seen that it's a holy calling and God's calling separates you unto himself and separates you unto some service. So he says here, When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me, the calling came next by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Immediately I conferred not Neither, but, I conferred not the flesh and blood, neither went up to Jerusalem to them which were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia. Now those words are little words, but the whole of his challenge is brought to light in them, isn't An apostle, and his gospel, and his commission, not of men, neither by men, but by Jesus Christ. Now once you face that you don't have to be spiritually minded you just have to be logical. Say if that is the only man who's ever called in the New Testament the apostle of the Gentiles surely my reaction should be well I'd better find out what he teaches. And so it is. Now of course we leave the rest of the epistle to speak for itself on other occasions. (coughs) But God's very Very helped, very encouraged to meet this man after many years, to be told that to give that emphasis sort of just was the last bit he wanted before he entered into the wonderful teaching which we associate with this man. Not because it was his, it was given to him. Another one that I met when I was away at Birmingham, he told me some time ago how he came into the light. He said, you took a chalk and you drew a line down the blackboard like that. And he said, you put my nose on that as sure as a man used to put a chicken's nose on a chalk line. I don't know whether you know that happens to a chicken. Very strange figure, isn't it? Because the chicken's got such a little brain, he doesn't know what to do with his chalk line. But he said, you drew a chalk line like that down the board. Before that's 28, afterwards. And by the time you're done, you've got me, you see. How did you see These are the ways in which the scripture has been written. And if we'll only believe the book to be true and means what it says, what a power it can be. So we we associate this word calling with purpose. And that's about as far as we shall get this evening. So we come back to Romans, the 8th chapter. Starting at verse 28. And we know. Or whether that means we can't start at Acts 28. Uh, Acts eight twenty eight, Because he's finishing up an argument. He says in verse 26, we know not what we should pray for as we ought. We know not that. But he says in verse 28, we do know this, that whether we know what to pray for or whether we don't, we do know this, that all things work together for good for them that love God. Who are those that love God? To those who are the called, according to his purpose. So you see, this is no light thing. We're back again where we started this evening in 2 Timothy 1.9. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace that was given us in Christ Jesus before Time began, before a time of ages. So it's a weighty thing, isn't it? And here he's on the same line. Those who are called according to his purpose. Now he explains a bit further. For, do watch out the little logical particles of the Apostle Paul. He's a very logical writer. The word for means he's going on to explain. For, whom he did for know, he also did predestinate. Now, of course, we're up against a very difficult passage, and some folks can be very much upset. But don't you see that foreknowledge comes before predestination? How God can foreknow what uh, anybody can do voluntarily, thousands of years before the time, I don't know, do you? But it says so. He knows the end from the beginning. Well as far as I interpret this God knew whether I would respond to the call of the gospel when it was given to me or whether I wouldn't. He didn't compel me to do one or the other. Because if we have no free will we cannot commit sin. We can't help ourselves because we're not free. You don't, you you might be lose a temper over a machine or a car or something, well that's silly because the machine or car has got no will of its own. But you have at least the freedom of choice. So they, those will be for you. Now the word predestinate looks on the surface as though it's destiny or fate. But that isn't so it's the word destination. That's got no fate about it. That's where you're aiming at, where you're getting to the Greek word pro horizo pro beforehand horizo which gives you the horizon that's the imaginary line that divides the sky from the sea. that's all, to mark off beforehand and if every one of you have done your duty, that is unless you haven't got anything to leave behind except trouble if every one of you have done your duty, you have made a will however small it may be, to save your loved ones a lot of bother afterwards. And if you make your will, you cannot help yourself but predestinate somebody to do something or receive something. Can you? There's no destiny about it, no fate about it. You don't imprison that person's will because they know nothing about it, unless you tell them. And are they going to say, when the lawyer sends to them and say? Uh, Please sign the receipt I'm sending you. You have been left a legacy of £5,000. You say, Oh, that's a monstrous thing. Fancy predestinating me, locking up myself, my will. Have you ever heard people talk like that? What do you say? I say, If you, a poor mortal person, can predestinate someone to a blessing and you don't intrude upon their liberty, surely God Himself will if he has a mighty purpose of the ages, he's not going to leave it all to chance. He saw that you would believe. So he put your name down in his will and you are given an inheritance that's going to be a glorious one when you go into it. And surely you're thankful for it. So he goes on. Whom he did mark off beforehand, then he also called. Oh, nothing's left out. You see, it was very aggravating if you found, or your your friends found, that after you were dead, the lawyer had forgotten to advise you that you were a legatee and you might have been living in comfort. Oh, no forgetfulness with God. He calls those whose names he put down in his will. And whom he called, they'll be also justified. Why? Oh, well, they can't enter into the glory without the whole account being settled, you'd be perfectly free from sin and all its consequences. Hasn't he taken care of your friends? And ultimately, whom he justified, then he also glorified. And it's so certain that he's put it down as though it's already. He doesn't say, whom he justified, then he would also glorify in the future. It's all down straight away. Whom he did predestinate, then he also called. Whom he called, They'll be also justified. Who be justified, they'll be also glorified. No wonder he says, What should we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not his own son. Now this is how he made his will, with a knowledge that every one of those who were going to be heirs to the glory We'd have to be touched with the blood of redeeming love, you see. How should he not with us? How should he not with him also freely give us all things? Isn't it a rebuke, friends, to sit and listen to that and then think of the things you worry about or you have worried about? If God has done all this for us already and here we're worrying about these little things, So we say, well, he knows our circumstances, he's put us here. We can trust him for the small things of life if we can trust him for these mighty things. So once again, I ask you, in the title of this series, brethren, you see your calling? And if you dare to say yes, well, let's, by the mercy of God, see to it that we give some intelligible response.